Hello and welcome to Resuscitate, a podcast about resuscitation and emergency medicine. This is your host Manish Taneja. I'm sorry for the long hiatus. I recently got mad and it took me a while to get back to schedule. So let's start with our second episode. Today's episode is about hyperkalemia. Well, you know, you heard it, potassium. So, uh, potassium is the most abundant cation in the body. It is estimated that the total reserve of potassium is around 3000 to 4000 millimole in an adult, out of which only 60 millimole, that is only 2%, is extracellular. So, potassium is mostly an intracellular cation. Normal extracellular concentration of potassium is between 3.5 to 5.5 milliequivalent or millimole per liter. Well, since potassium has a valency of 1, millimole and milliequivalent can be used interchangeably. So hyperkalemia by European Resuscitation Council is defined as serum potassium value of more than 5.5 millimole per liter. and severe hyperkalemia is defined as serum potassium value of more than 6.5 millimole per liter so it has been shown that hyperkalemia is associated with poor outcomes in many instances like in patients of cardiac or renal disease or in critically ill so the patient of hyperkalemia will usually be asymptomatic unless a disturbance of cardiac rhythm or conduction occurs some patients might present with weakness or with flaccid paralysis with paresthesias or depressed deep tendon reflexes but these signs and symptoms are mostly seen in patients of hypokalemia so increased extracellular potassium leads to a decreased potassium gradient across the cell and this decreased potassium gradient leads to reduction in resting membrane potential not only will it result in reduction of resting membrane potential hyperkalemia increases membrane permeability of potassium increases repolarization currents and shortens duration of transmembrane action potential the initial increase in conduction velocity resulting from hyperkalemia later decreases at higher levels hyperkalemia is associated with some of the most classical ecg findings and they are mostly due to hyperexcitability the most important of those are the tall peak t waves which indicates a decrease in threshold of depolarization other findings like pr prolongation loss of p waves or flattening of p waves qrs widening bradycardia in the end leads to sinusoid or sine wave pattern the association between potassium levels and ecg changes are found to be poor Also sometimes hyperkalemia might result in minimal or atypical changes on ECG like pseudo Brugada pattern or non specific SCT changes there are multiple papers even by the likes of Amal Mattu on ECG changes in hyperkalemia the causes of hyperkalemia can be divided into four broad categories the first category is due to decreased renal clearance like in a patient of chronic kidney disease or acute kidney injury or in the patient who are using ras inhibitors renin angiotensin aldosterone inhibitors like spironolactone the second category of patients are due to increased release from intracellular compartments like patients who are suffering from rhabdomyolysis or hemolysis or by the use of succinylcholine the third category is of the patients who suffer due to altered transfer of potassium to intracellular compartment like in patients who are suffering from acidosis or patients with insulin deficiencies or use of beta adrenergic blockers or with the use of heparin or cardiac glycosides like digoxin 
the fourth category is of the patients who suffer from iatrogenic causes like hemolysis due to blood transfusion or giving wrong potassium doses here i would like to emphasize on the pathophysiology of mineral acidosis like hyperchloremic acidosis they cause hyperkalemia by reducing ph extracellularly since chloride cannot freely diffuse inside the cell it causes reduction of ph extracellularly which causes reduction in functioning of sodium proton pump or sodium proton exchange pump since there are already enough h plus or protons outside the cell so which causes decrease in sodium concentration inside the cell which leads to decrease functioning of sodium potassium atpase causing hyperkalemia organic acids on the other hand like lactate or phosphate they freely diffuse into the intracellular compartment and that's why don't hamper with the functioning of sodium proton pump it is also one of the reason why we should be using more balanced solutions like ringer lactate instead of 0.9% sodium chloride Another important cause is the use of drug succinylcholine scoline we all love using it in ra rapid sequence intubations it is a skeletal muscle relaxant a depolarizing skeletal muscle relaxant which works on nicotinic receptors on the skeletal muscle which causes efflux of intracellular potassium so it is shown that on average it increases serum potassium by 0.4 millimole per liter and that is the reason why scoline is contraindicated in hyperkalemia or in the patients who might have an upregulation of nicotinic receptors like anatomical denervation or prolonged neuromuscular blocking drugs use or there is an injury a burn injury or prolonged immobilization but before proceeding to the treatment of hyperkalemia we should always remember to rule out pseudo hyperkalemia caused due to wrongful hemolysis of a blood sample so the treatment of hyperkalemia is divided into three strategies the first is to stabilize the membrane so the use of membrane stabilizers if there are ecg changes the second strategy is to shift the excess extracellular potassium into the intracellular compartment and the third strategy is to finally increase the excretion of potassium from the body either by urinary route or gastrointestinal route or by using renal replacement therapy so let's discuss the first treatment strategy foremost use of membrane stabilizers calcium salts are the commonly used membrane stabilizers in the practice 10% salts of calcium gluconate or calcium chloride are the commonly preferred ones most people prefer calcium gluconate over chloride because extravasation of calcium chloride causes irritation calcium salts cause immediate normalizations of ecg abnormalities they increase cardiac threshold potential and speed of impulse propagation they stabilize the myocyte membrane by binding to calcium dependent calmodulin and protein kinase 2 and by activating sodium gated channel and increasing sodium influx intracellularly restoring the phase 0 action potential and increasing the resting membrane potential no randomized studies have been done to prove its efficacy but the use is based upon expert recommendations Most books suggest using a dose of 1 to 2 g of calcium salts which is 10 to 20 ml of 10% chloride salts that is 27.2 mg per ml of calcium or 10 to 30 ml of 10% gluconate salts which is 9 mg per ml of calcium Tintinali suggests using 5 to 10 ml of chloride and 10 to 20 ml of 10% gluconate 
it works immediately the onset of action is within 1 to 3 minutes and the action lasts for around 30 to 60 minutes so because of its short duration of action it can be repeated for up to 4 times in an hour the use of calcium salts can be challenging in a case of hypercalcemia or in digitalis toxicity Hypertonic sodium also works by stabilizing the membrane. In 1960, there was a study done by Greenstein and others. They studied the ECG abnormalities in hyperkalemia on nephrectomized dogs and showed that infusion of hypertonic sodium increased action potential rising velocity. The use of hypertonic sodium can be considered in patients where the infusion of calcium salts are deemed to be risky. The other action of hypertonic sodium, which is a little controversial, is that it is believed to shift the potassium intracellularly. Tintinali also mentions it. But the data regarding that is controversial. Studies like Nugugi and all showed sodium bicarbonate is less effective than salbutamol and insulin dextrose. Other, however, like Schwarz and all, reported reduction in serum sodium levels after sodium bicarbonate infusion. A recent randomized control trial, BICAR ICU, administered hypertonic sodium bicarb 4.5% in critically ill patients with pH less than 7.2. There was no difference observed in the primary outcome, but the bicarbonate group had lower potassium concentrations. So it is suggested that hypertonic sodium can be used in acidotic patients or in patients where calcium use is contraindicated. Side effects of using hypertonic sodium salts are metabolic alkalosis, hypernatremia, hypocalcemia and fluid overload. The second strategy is to shift the extracellular excess potassium intracellularly and it is done by the use of drugs like insulin dextrose. So insulin binds to insulin receptors present in skeletal muscle and activates sodium potassium ATPase which causes intracellular transfer of potassium. Although it has never been tested in comparison to placebos, some studies, however, show a similar action to salbutamol, but only faster. The major side effects of using insulin dextrose is hypoglycemia, which is dose-related. Tintinali advises on giving a dose of 5 to 10 units of regular insulin with 25 grams of dextrose, that is 50 ml of 50% dextrose or 100 ml of 25% dextrose. Two retrospective studies, LaRue's and all and McNicholas and all, have found a similar potassium lowering effects with use of either 5 units or 10 units of insulin. So to limit hypoglycemia with 10 units of insulin dose, a dextrose concentration of 50 to 60 grams should be used. Or weight-based dosing that is 0.1 unit per kg up to maximum of 10 units have also been tried. The onset of insulin action is within 30 minutes and the duration of action is for 4 to 6 hours. Another drug in the category are beta-2 agonists. Salbutamol, also known as albuterol, reduces serum potassium equally when used as a nebulizer or intravenously. Intravenous use is associated with more cardiac complications. A dose of 10 to 20 mg causes maximum reduction of 0.4 to 1.2 millimole per liter in serum potassium. The onset of action is within 15 to 30 minutes and the peak action is between 60 to 90 minutes and the duration is of 2 to 4 hours. Side effects like tachycardia are worrisome in patients with heart failure and, and unstable angina. 
hyperglycemia, increased plasma lactate are also other side effects. It is considered to be a first-line therapy in non-severe hyperkalemia in spontaneously breathing patients who don't have tachycardia. The third and final strategy is by increasing the excretion of potassium from the body, either by urinary or gastrointestinal route or by using renal replacement therapy. Tube diuretics are the drug of choice for increasing urinary excretion of potassium. Furosemide, which is a sodium-potassium chloride co-transport inhibitor, increases the sodium concentration in tubules which activates sodium-potassium ATPase in late nephron, which causes increased potassium excretion. The effect and duration are unpredictable. Tintinali advises on using 40 to 80 mg of furosemide intravenously. Elsewise, dose of 0.2 to 0.4 mg per kg in patients without acute kidney injury to dose of 1 to 1.5 mg per kg in patients with acute kidney injury with fluid overload can be used. Furosemide should only be used after excluding low intravascular volume. Gastrointestinal excretion can be increased by using drugs like polystyrene sulfonate. It comes in two salts, calcium polystyrene sulfonate or sodium polystyrene sulfonate. In India, we use calcium polystyrene sulfonate, which comes with the name of K-bind. Although no trials has shown that it increases fecal potassium loss, but we have been using it and there are no studies available on its efficacy in acute settings. Also, the side effects include GI perforation, especially in abnormal transit like in shock or post-operative patients. So its use is not advisable in emergent setting. Other new potassium binders like pateromer which comes by the name of Veltasa or sodium zirconium cyclosilicate ZS9 which exchanges sodium for potassium are also been tried and show some promise in early usage and trials. Severe hyperkalemia is one of the indications for renal replacement therapy in AKI. But the concentration of potassium and other clinical indications have always been a topic of debate. Recent data suggests that medical treatment for hyperkalemia can be tried in critically ill patients with mild hyperkalemia. Renal replacement therapies include diffusive, that is hemodialysis, convective, that is hemofiltration, and mixed modalities in acute setting. For further reading, a good review article by Diprat, Peacock, and others is published recently in Annals of Intensive Care. I hope this has been a helpful podcast. For further, please follow on Twitter at ResuscitatePod or write to us with suggestions or advices at ResuscitatePodcast at gmail.com and please subscribe. Thank you.